you're not there already, you can turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. If you're visiting with us, we've been working our way through the book of Leviticus. We find ourselves in the midst of a kind of sub-series on Leviticus on uh, the different feasts of the Lord. Uh, the feasts of, and so I've kind of entitled this mini-series within Leviticus 23 is meeting with Jesus at the feasts of Israel. And today we're going to look in particular at the feast of first fruits. So it's in verses 9 through 14. Leviticus chapter 23 verse 9. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before Yahweh for you to be accepted. On that day, after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. On the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old without blemish, for a burnt offering to Yahweh. Its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to Yahweh for a soothing aroma with its drink offering, a fourth of a hint of wine. Until the same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither, you shall eat neither bread nor, roast, nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your places of habitation. This is God's ancient holy word. Let's ask him for help. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us illumination by your spirit. Open the eyes of our heart that we might see wondrous things in your law. Give us ears to hear. Help us to see how this ancient feast, this ancient ceremony and ritual is a picture, a shadow, a type wherein we find the Lord Jesus Christ. Feed our souls this morning. I pray in particular for those who are strangers of grace, who have not yet bowed their knee to King Jesus. Oh, I pray that even this morning they would bow in whose name we pray. Amen. I believe it was a cold October day this past year in 2022 when I heard screams coming from the backyard. I could faintly make out what these screams were. Then they were joined with other screams from other children in our family. And then finally as the screams got closer to the house I could make out what they were saying. Egg! Egg! Our chickens laid an egg! This past May, we purchased some chickens, had been feeding them over the months, and there was thrill and excitement from that first egg. Selfies were taken with that egg, many pictures of that egg were taken. There was excitement in the air. God had provided an egg. But there was also hope and anticipation 
that that would be the first of many eggs to come. And indeed it was. That egg was the first fruits of our eggs. Something similar takes place. I, you know, I'm trying to be an urban farmer these days. Uh, but, uh, and, it, and it helps us to kind of go back to the setting of the ancient world and this agricultural society in which harvest was so very important, which food did not miraculously appear on the shelves of giant eagle, but actually was grown from farms, from their own hands of labor. And we find ourselves, I mentioned in previous weeks, Leviticus is a kind of a catalog of the different feasts of the Lord that the ancient Israelites observed. And uh, we, we, we see kind of a basic description that is given there. And you often have to go outside of Leviticus 23 to get more insight as to what was going on and some of the significance of these feasts. And so let's just kind of work our way through Leviticus 23 verses 9 to 14 and then look at some other passages and draw some lessons from the Feast of first fruits. So in verse 9 it says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses. And this, that phrase is, is often an indication of a kind of new section because this is a different feast he's going to talk about. And verse 10 says, Speak to the sons of Israel, say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you, uh, to give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priests. So this is giving us a kind of an indication of, of the historical context of where Israel was at at this time. They're not yet in the land, okay? Leviticus comes before the book of Joshua, okay? They're still in the desert. They will be there for another 38 some years in the desert before they actually finally get to go into the promised land. And so this was a, a feast that would, would only be able to be observed once they are actually in the land. It also is an indication of God's grace when God tells them that this is the land that he's going to give them. And specific instructions are, are given when that first fruits of the harvest comes, when there's that first, first uh, produce from the land and they reap it, they're to bring it to the priest. Now, in Jewish tradition, it was uh, often the households would mark that first fruits by tying a little string to that, that first uh, produce of the land. And also, it might be helpful to understand that it was, it was usually the barley that came up first. And they were to bring a sheaf. A sheaf was a bundle of, of barley or of wheat. And this was to be brought to the priest. Verse 11. And he, that is the priest, shall wave the sheaf before Yahweh for you to be accepted on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So this here was, it's called a wave offering, okay? Where the, the, the priest would wave this uh, likely before the congregation. Now, maybe if he was charismatic, he would wave it and walk down the aisles. And, I don't know. But 
He's waving this offering, and this is, this is an indication that this sheaf, this produce, has come from Yahweh Almighty. He is the one who has given it. It was a, a, a highlight of thankfulness, much maybe in the same way, which, you know, we have different ways of offering thanks to the Lord before meals, that you may say grace, you may say a prayer. So Israel was to acknowledge that God had provided this first fruit. And notice the time stamp here in verse 11. The day after the Sabbath. Now, there was a debate in Jewish tradition as to whether this was the day that immediately fell after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, so remember we talked about Passover. There was Passover that was on the 14th of Nisan. And then there was a Feast of Unleavened Bread began the next day on the 15th. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week long and it was bookended by Sabbath observances, days of rest on the first day and on the seventh day. Okay, and so then here's this description that the feast of first fruits is to happen after the Sabbath, and the question was whether that was the Sabbath that occurred between, like the weekly seventh day that happened after the beginning of the feast of first fruits, or whether whether that first day of first fruits was regarded as the Sabbath. This was a debate that went on in Jewish history. You have to hold that thought for later. We'll come back to it. Verse 12. Now on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without blemish. And so here there was to be a burnt offering of a male lamb, one year old, which remember the the burnt offerings, the significance of that, these were substitutionary offerings. These were for people's sin, where where the priest would lay his hand on that that, that, uh, lamb, the lamb would be slaughtered. It was a picture of the transferring of guilt. And and so again, this is highlighting the the reality that, that the same hands that harvested the crop were also dirty hands, filthy from sin that needed to be atoned for. Henry Law says of this, the hand which would bring gifts to God must first be washed in the atoning stream. In every service, God's eye looks for his son's blood. If this be presence, if this be present, sure acceptance smiles. If this be absence, sure rejection frowns. The worldling's heart may throb, a grateful throb, but it cannot approach in nature's filth. He must be cleansed or or he can gain no access and nothing cleanses but the blood of Christ. Verse 13. Its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil an offering by fire to Yahweh for a soothing aroma with its drink offering a fourth of a hin of wine. So there's two more components to the offering. Not only the, 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 the meat offering of the whole burnt lamb, 
but also there was to be a, uh, a, a grain offering, which this would have been similar to that, that uh, uh, offering from Leviticus chapter 2, which was a kind of tribute offering unto the Lord. And here a description is given of two-tenths of an ephah with oil, which would have basically been uh, seven quarts or 7.28 liters. And then also a, a hint of wine. So there was a libation offering or drink offering that was also given here. Which is again probably indicative of highlighting that, that, that these, are, these are first fruits of future grapes that are going to come. And this measurement of a fourth of a hint, this would have been likely two and a half pints. I think handles pints, two and a half of those of wine poured on the altar. And then also notice here on verse, in verse 14 says, until the same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all the places of your habitation. So God gives specific instructions here. That you're not allowed to eat of that new harvest. Until this ritual has taken place. Perhaps maybe in the same way. You know you sit down at the table. You're ready to pray before you eat. There's always that child who snuck a mouthful of food. <laughs> prematurely. God says, no, nobody eats until the wave offering takes place, until this thank offering takes place. So what do we learn from this? Three lessons from the Feast of First Fruits. And one of these lessons, I think we have to go to Deuteronomy chapter 26 to gather the fullness of this lesson because it talks about this feast of first fruits in Deuteronomy 26 verses 1 and following and, and it's really the, the lesson of gratitude giving. Verse 1 of Deuteronomy 26 it says, Then it shall be when you enter the land which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance and you possess it and live in it. So again, this is uh, in Deuteronomy, it was the same situation they were in Leviticus. They're still in the desert. Verse 2, that you take some of the first fruits of all the land of the ground which you bring in from your land that Yahweh your God gives you and you shall put it in the basket and go to the place where Yahweh your God chooses for his name to dwell. So when they immediately entered the land, that would be the tabernacle. But then later in the days of Solomon, it would be uh, the temple. Verse 3, you shall go to the priest who is in office in those, uh, in those days and say to, the, say to him. So this is, you, you're supposed to kind of rehearse this line. I declare to you, I declare this day to Yahweh my God that I have entered the land which Yahweh swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand, shall set it down before the altar of Yahweh your God, and you shall answer and say before Yahweh your God, quote, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. But there was a great and mighty and populous nation, 
And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard slave labor on us. Then we cried out to Yahweh, the God of our fathers. And Yahweh heard our voice and saw our affliction and toil and our oppression. And Yahweh brought us up out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now I have brought the first of the fruit of the ground, which, and this is very important, which you, O Yahweh, have given me. And you shall set it down before Yahweh your God and worship before Yahweh your God. And you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you, you shall be glad in all the good which Yahweh your God has given you in your household. So we can see here that this is, again, this is a kind of ritual in which thanks was to be given to Yahweh that we, as your people, we were down in Egypt and we were enslaved and we cried out to you and you gave us a land, a land flowing with milk and honey and you have given us the produce of the land and we bring before you the first fruits of the land as an acknowledgement that we are recipients of your kindness and grace. And so you can see this here, and this is the first lesson, it is a posture of gratitude. A posture of gratitude, which we're going to see in a moment, leads to giving. This is very important, friends. God wants us to see his kindnesses towards us. He wants us to see the things in our life are gifts from his hand that we actually do not deserve. We deserve God's eternal unending judgment. But he gives us grace. He kindly provides for us. Think of it, friends. Think of your own life Somebody was to record how much you grumble throughout the day. How much of a recording would that be? You know, we find ways to grumble, you know, when it's cold out in February. Oh, it's so cold out today. I mean, what'd you expect February in northeastern Ohio, right? And then summertime comes, hits the 90s. It's so hot today, right? We, we would demand that we have control of the thermostat. But we don't. And we tend to be a grumbling, complaining people, but we, we often are blinded to God's gracious dealings with us, the way he provides for us, provides roofs over our heads, food on our tables, friendships, relationships. Again, Henry Law says, the priest uplifts the sheaf on high. The first fruits represent the entire produce of the fields. This is a confession that all the earth's yieldings is the property of God. 
Without his will, no seed takes root, no blade appears, no stalk ascends, no grain mature. Man's toil and care may be employed, but all the power is divine. Where then is foolishness like this, who fondly dreams that he is Lord of the lands? The richest lands hold nothing but alone. Let that then which is God's and only his be wholly his. And so friends, God would call us to be a thankful people. Not just giving lip service before a meal. But our lives would be a verbal expression of thankfulness to God and his gracious dealings with us. But this should also lead us to have open hands towards others. Because God is large hearted towards us. God is not stingy in his dealings with us. We should be large hearted towards others. Notice if you're still in Deuteronomy 26 in verse 12. It says immediately after this this first fruits offering. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the sojourner, to the orphan, and the widow, that they may eat within your gates and be satisfied. So here was this stipulation that every third year there was to be this tithe that went to the Levite, to the sojourner, the alien among you, the orphan, those in need, who don't have parents to provide for them, the widow, those women who didn't have husbands to provide for them, that they may eat within your gates and be satisfied. Then you shall say before Yahweh your God, I've purged the sacred portion from my house. I've also given to the Levite and the sojourner and the orphan and the widow according to your commands which you have commanded me. I have not trespassed against or forgotten any of your commandments. And so this gratitude to God, this thankfulness, was then to spill over in a large-heartedness towards others towards others in need. And friends, isn't this how it works? You know, when we're living in an anti-gospel kind of way, which that's what grumbling is. Grumbling says, I deserve better than this. That's anti-gospel. Gospel teaches us, I'm a sinner who deserves hell. God has been kind to me. He's given me the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sins. And everything else is just icing on the cake. Icing on the cake. When we're living in light of that reality, then then we will be large-hearted towards others. We will be open-handed towards others. God has been so kind to me, I want to be kind to others. But when we're anti-gospel, no, I deserve better. I'm getting a raw deal in life. I have a grievance. A grievance against God and all of humanity. I am a victim in society. Sound familiar? That's that's the air we breathe in our culture, right? But it's anti-gospel. And sometimes we breathe in that air and breathe out that air on others. 
But God would call us to live as recipients of his gospel grace and to be generous towards others. In fact, the Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3, he touches on this. He says in 3, 9, and 10, this is actually the verse the young people are memorizing for catechism class. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. And your vats will be bursting with wine. God's saying, be generous. Be large hearted towards others. God, I'll take care of you. I'll fill it back up. I will replenish it. Similarly, we see the prophet Malachi rebuking the people of Israel when they weren't practicing this. He says in Malachi 3, 5 and following, then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against sorcerers and against adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner of his wages and the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. And then the second part of verse 7, he says, Return to me and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? And God asks, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And tithes and contributions. You have cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And so God, again, rebukes the Israelites and even calling them, saying they're robbing him because they're not large-hearted in their giving. And so God would call us to be large-hearted towards others. So, and friends, you, you know how this sometimes goes. You hear of a need and then you get busy. You think, oh, I should help out there. And then you get busy and you forget about it, Right? You know, uh, I think it was Francis Schaeffer who talked about opportune moments of love. You know, there, there's sometimes a window of opportunity to show kindness, to show love, and, 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 and it's not always open. Sometimes it's, it's there for a little bit and then closes. Sometimes it stays open longer. But we need to walk through those open doors, those open windows of love and take those opportunities to show kindness as we have been recipients of God's kindness. But not only the posture of gratitude giving, but secondly, the promise of a people and place in glory. Now, this takes us to the New Testament. It's fascinating the way in which the New Testament alludes to this feast of first fruits in a, in a handful of different passages. Uh, for instance, one of these passages is in Romans 16.5 when it's, it's in the midst of a greeting as Paul is, is finishing the letter that he's dictating. Uh, he says, greet also the church that is in their house. Romans 16.5. Greet my beloved Epinatus who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Which is literally who was the first fruits in Asia. In other words, he's, he's saying, greet my friend Epinetus. Uh, he is a first fruit of Asia. What, what is he talking about there? Just as, it, as the translation I read suggests, 
he was speaking of conversions as a kind of a first fruit. When the first believer in that area becomes a believer, they're the first fruit. It's like a promise of more to come. It's God in his kindness providing a convert who is, who is then going to be the first of many more to come. It's, he, it's the same language in 1 Corinthians 16, 15. He says, now I exhort you brothers, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Again, Stephanus, the household of Stephanus, they were the first fruits of Achaia. But then it seems to broaden out either, even further, not to individuals, but also to churches that become first fruits. For instance, in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we should always give thanks to God for you. Brethren, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So Paul's saying, we give thanks to God because you guys are first fruits. God chose you to be first fruits. He's writing to the church in Thessalonica. We see this similarly in James 1.18. James writes to those scattered believers. He says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. First fruits. So over and over sprinkled throughout the New Testament is this idea that God brings forth a first fruit and that's, that's the beginnings of his dealings and his workings maybe in a people or in a church in a certain geographical area and there's more to come. There's more people who are going to be come in, coming in. There's a greater harvest that is going to be had and this, is a, this first fruit is to be given as a thank offering unto the Lord. God did this and there's more to come. There's more to come. Some of you are first fruits in your family. And perhaps you've even seen that. I've seen that in the lives of some where there's a first fruit, first generation believer. There's no other believers amongst their aunts, uncles, parents, grandparents, even they can go back generations and they know of no gospel believer. They're a first fruit. And then maybe a sister gets converted. Maybe an aunt, maybe a mom, maybe a dad. And, and there's a multiplication of a harvest that God begins to bring forth. And God here is promising that, that, that he is going to bring in all of his harvest. It's all from him and it's all through him and it all goes back to him. And that heaven is going to be populated with the harvest of all whom God will save. But some are first fruits as a promise of things to come. And so this, this can be an encouragement to us. You may, be, you may be the only believer in your family. And you may be wondering, is, is God going to save any others? Well, no, very well. You may be just the first fruits. 
And there may be more coming and you can be a witness. You can be part of that harvest. You can give thanks to God for what he he has done, but also pray, God, bring forth more. Harvest out more from my family. Bring more to saving knowledge of Jesus. So God is breaking in this creation a new creation that will inhabit a new heavens and a new earth for all eternity. And you can be a part of what he's doing there. What a wonderful thing. It's a people and it's, it's a place. Look at, look at Romans 8.18 8, and following. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. This is on page 1522 or 23. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he's saying that the sufferings, the difficulties of this present life, compared with the glory to come, there's no comparison. Yes, yes, this is hard, this is difficult, but compared with what's coming on the horizon, it'll be worth the wait. Verse 19, for the anxious longing of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Notice what he's saying here. He's saying the creation itself has been infected by the fall of man. We see that in in the earliest pages of Genesis, right? The ground becomes cursed. Thorns and thistles come forth out of the ground. The, The creation has been infected by the reality of the fall because of rebellious creatures. But even the creation, it's almost he's personifying the creation. It's like waiting. Come on. Come on. Bring it, Lord. Bring the new creation. Verse 20, he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's saying the, the, the creation, the inanimate creation, is waiting for God's people to be glorified so that the creation also can be glorified. So that the creation also can be resurrected. And it's like they're just eagerly waiting. They're anticipating. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So now he's using the imagery of childbirthing. Which child, the the labor process is always an agonizing process, but it is a hopeful process, right? There's, There's the pain, there's the agony, there's the difficulty. But at the end of it all is the hope, a baby, it's a boy, it's a girl, right? And so he's saying in the similar way, the creation is agonizing, it's groaning, it's waiting Verse 23, 
But not only this, but we ourselves also, here it is, keep your eye on the ball, having the first fruits of the Spirit. We ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. So here in verse 23, he speaks again this language of first fruits. He's hearkening back to the feast of first fruits. He's highlighting this. He says, We also have received the first fruits of the Spirit. We have been the recipients of the inbreaking of God in his new creation in this world. And, and this, we need to kind of step back and think big picture here, right? Genesis chapter 1, God creates this world good. But then Genesis chapter 3, man rebels. He shakes his fist up at his creator. And he Brings the fall of man with it and the creation with it. And then by the time we get to God's gracious dealings with man, the climax of redemption with the coming of Christ, God is making a new creation. He's calling a people out of the fallen creation to be a new creation. And then the creation, the inanimate creation, will follow one day that new creation. So that by the time we get to the book of Revelation, there is a new heavens and a new earth inhabited by the people of God who have been redeemed. And so the Feast of first fruits, it, it really teaches us a, a theology of already but not yet, right? The first fruits is here. But the full harvest has not yet come. There's an already aspect of salvation, of God's inbreaking into this fallen creation, redeeming a people, but the climactic fulfillment of it all is not yet. It, has, it is yet to come. We're, we're God's people with a, notice he says in verse 23 there, Adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. In other words, the fullness of our adoption takes place when we receive a glorified body. When our physical creation is completely restored as we live in a new creation and God restores planet earth. This is good stuff. This is good stuff. You know, sometimes when we think about the eternal state, heaven, we, we think of it in very non-physical ways. But that's not how the Bible speaks of it. God resurrects bodies to live in a physically restored new heavens and new earth. Now, will our bodies, you know, I mean, what is it like for bodies without sin to live in a physical world? I don't know, Right? I don't know how that works. But it'll be good. <laughs> I mean, think about even in this fallen, broken world, how many wonderful things God gives us to enjoy. So many gifts, pleasurable gifts from His hand that our heart just in its best moments just leaps out with joy. Thank you, Lord, for this gift. 
How much more with a resurrected body in a new heavens and new earth? We're finally, we'll be liberated from sin so much that, you know, and this is this tragic reality in this fallen world is that so often we wind up worshiping the creation rather than the creator. But finally, we'll be able to actually enjoy the creation and worship the creator in the fullness of who he is. Instead of communing with our food, we can commune with the creator who's the giver of that food. It's a work in progress right now, right? But one day, there won't even be that tension. It'll just be pure worship as we enjoy his creation. Pure worship of him, not the creation. Friend, this is a hope. A hope that we can live in. A hope that we can anticipate. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by His working through which He is able even to subject all things to Himself. As the Apostles' Creed says, we believe in the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection. That God will restore his people entirely, body and soul. And he's not given up on planet earth. There will be a new heavens and new earth. Friend, are you coming here this morning in despair as you see all the tragedies of this world around us? Downcast in soul, perhaps experiencing a recent loss of a loved one, a diagnosis that has a poor prognosis with it. I, I tell you on the authority of God's word, there's real hope of a world to come. A real paradise regained. With real resurrected bodies, something like this body, but better, 2.0. But it only happens through the Lord Jesus in his death and resurrection as we're going to see in a minute. It doesn't happen outside of him. Outside of him, God will bring judgment, cursing, and woe. And he will incarcerate all evil in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone forever and ever. So turn to Christ before it's too late. Well, we see the posture of Gratitude giving, the promise of a people and place and glory, and now thirdly, the picture of a resurrection guaranteed. Now this is, this is fascinating here. I, I told you about that debate between the rabbis of when 
the feast of first fruits was to take place. Whether it was the after the, the weekly Sabbath that maybe happened between the, 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 the beginning of first fruits and the end, or whether it was immediately after the, uh, that first Sabbath at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, the Gospel of John, in that Passion Week of Jesus, that last week of his death, tells us in John 19.14 that the day upon which Jesus died was Passover. Now it was the day of the preparation for Passover. It was about the sixth hour and he said to the Jews, behold your king. So this is Pilate presenting Jesus as the day he's executed. It's on Passover. Isn't it fitting that it would be Passover day in which the Lamb of God that John the Baptist spoke of would take away the sin of the world. So that means that according to Mark 15, 42, when evening had already come because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So that Passover happened on a Friday when Jesus died, Friday afternoon, The Feast of Unleavened Bread would happen on that Saturday, which was also the Sabbath. So in other words, no matter how you slice the cake, whatever side of the debate the rabbis takes place on, the day after the Sabbath, or the day after the first day of unleavened bread, Sunday was the Feast of Firstfruits. Isn't it appropriate that the day Jesus died was Passover? The Passover lamb. The day of unleavened bread was when Jesus is buried, lying flat. And isn't it appropriate on the feast of first fruits, he rises? It's no wonder that. The New Testament, the Apostle Paul, will refer to Christ as our first fruit. Henry Law again says, following this clue, let us now gaze on Jesus in this type. The sheaf relates to a tale of triumph. It brings back the thought to a seed cast into the ground. To view it was in a dry and worthless husk. The earth's tomb then buried it. Mighty hindrances assailed it. The frost retained it with iron grass. Many storms repressed it. And at last it raised a living head. Here life gains victory over death. So that when that priest brought that sheaf of barley and held it before the people in a very real sense... When, when the Father raised Jesus from the dead, this was God holding forth the sheaf. Resurrection has taken place. There is a promise of more to come. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 15, 12 and following. In this context, there was some false teaching that had infected the church saying that there was not going to be a resurrection of believers bodily. 
there's kind of always been this hint, especially in Greek philosophy and Greek thinking, that physical bad, spiritual good. And by the way, sometimes this kind of thinking infects the church. Physical stuff bad, spiritual good. But not according to the Bible. God created the world physical. It was his idea. It wasn't Satan's idea. And he will redeem the world physical. And so this teaching was denying the future resurrection of believers. And Paul says logically, if you deny the future resurrection of believers, you're going to have to deny the resurrection of Jesus. They go together. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12, he says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead, namely for believers? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no hope of resurrection. Verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, we've been believing a lie. If there's no future resurrection of believers, there was no resurrection of Jesus, it's all a wash. Christianity is worthless, one big fat waste of time. Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Christ is the first fruits. He is the first one raised bodily as a promise there's more to come. Verse 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each according to, each to his own order. Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. What is this teaching? Friends, this is teaching us that Christ's resurrection was God's kind of down payment saying, everybody who dies trusting in him, they also will rise. Now when a believer dies in this world, the Bible teaches that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Their spirit goes to be with the Lord in the present heaven. And their body goes in the ground or whatever happens to their body. But one day when Jesus comes back, the Bible teaches he will summon all the dead to rise. That those who are alive at that time, their fallen, corrupted body will be instantly changed and they will be raised up to the Lord. And those that are dead and in the ground and wherever, maybe eaten by sharks and spread out all over, the Atlantic Ocean, God will somehow put it all back together and they will rise. 
And the resurrection of Christ is that first fruits. Friend, this is the hope that we have. This is the hope that we have. All of us will die. We've all seen loved ones die. We've had the tragic reality of going to funerals. But if those who died, died in the Lord, they will rise. Friend, this should give you hope. This is a sad world filled with death. I can't even count how many funerals I've been to in my life. And every one of those funerals that I've attended where that person died trusting in Christ, there is the promise because of Jesus' resurrection. That is not the end of the story. Not for that body. God will raise it from the dead. As sure as he summoned Lazarus out of that grave and Lazarus came forth, as sure as Jesus came forth out of the tomb, so all those who die in Jesus will rise. Friend, where is your hope? Where is your hope this morning? Fix your eyes on the promises of God. They are sure. They are steadfast. He will be faithful to all that he has promised. You can live in that hope. Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you may have heard of her. She was in a diving accident when she was a teenager. And she became a quadriplegic. She's spent, I think she's in her 60s now. Her almost entire adult life without the use of her hands, without the use of her legs, utterly dependent upon others. And she wrote a book about heaven. It's called Heaven, Your Real Home. And in that book she writes, I can hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, no feeling from my shoulders down, will one day have a new body. Light, bright, clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that this gives someone with a spinal cord injury like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsied or brain injured or who has multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find incredible hope. Friend, put your hope in Christ and you can share in this hope. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the feast of first fruits. Indeed, it gives us hope. Not a kind of wishful thinking, but a sure, certain, steadfast hope. A hope that is certain as the empty grave in Israel today. 
thank you, Jesus, for this hope. In whose name we pray, amen.